This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. So one of the challenges we face as lay practitioners living in the world is how we can integrate the Buddhist teachings of liberation, the Buddhist teachings on enlightenment, into the busyness of our lives in the world. Now, in the talks I'm going to be giving during this retreat, I'm going to be giving two talks and two question-response sessions, ultimately. And during this retreat, I'm going to be doing something a little different because in the talks that I'll be giving, I want to dive into the deep end of things. And so some of these teachings may be familiar to some of you, and perhaps some teachings uh, won't be. And at first, it may seem to be a little philosophical or conceptual or intellectual, but if you hang in there through the talks and through the uh, question sessions, you'll see that these teachings have a tremendously practical application and implication in our lives, because they are really the key to understanding how we create suffering for ourselves and others and how we can be free. Our inquiries often begin either very consciously or as a conscious reflection or perhaps as a more underlying background motivation. Our inquiries often begin with wondering and investigating the question, who am I? And when I think back to my very early introduction to the practice, I was still in the Peace Corps in Thailand. So this was in uh, 1965, 66. I was young. I was 21, 22 years old. And going through all the angst of being that age and trying to figure things out for myself. And I remember one time I was was teaching in Bangkok. Uh, I was teaching English. And I remember one time I was in my room just looking at the mirror and looking at myself in the mirror and just this question wondering who is behind 
what I'm seeing, right? Who am I behind all the, you know, turmoil of the thoughts and emotions? So the question was very, very alive. Who am I? But this who can be a very misleading question because it is already predicated on a misconception. If we ask, who am I? It is already predicated on the belief in some self at the center of it all, you know, at the center of this conventional world. Who am I? We're positing this mysterious being, you know, uh, at the center of things. Of course, it's important to say that in our ordinary ways of communication, this question of, you know, the who is completely appropriate. You know, if we ask who's coming for dinner, we don't want a particularly long philosophical analysis of what we mean by who. But from a Dharma perspective, when not rightly understood, this imaginary who, this view of the self, is the source of much of the suffering in our lives. So just uh, a little teaching about this. There was a writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei, who's actually a Westerner, I think, who was living in Hong Kong. And he had some, clearly had some awakening experience. And he wrote many books under this name, Wei Wu Wei. And the books contain a lot of short little aphorisms expressing his understanding. And so one of these aphorisms was being attached to the view of self. Being attached to the view of self is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. (laughs) So the question is, how long are we going to keep on barking? In terms of understanding and investigating the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom, in a deeper way, a more fruitful question than who is what, right? What are the basic building blocks of our experience? And then what do we do with them? How do we relate to these building blocks of experience? And again, just as a side note, even though during these talks, I'm going to be using the pronouns of I and you and me and we and they, keep in mind that the use of these pronouns is just a convenient way of communication, not that it reflects some essential who behind it all. Okay, so what is the what? What am I? What is the what? The Buddha laid out some very simple ways of understanding these basic elements of all of our experience. And then he talked about how we relate to these building blocks. And this, of course, involves a little bit more complexity. How do we relate to the basic building blocks of of experience that then go on to construct our lived reality? There's one short discourse that the Buddha gave, which 
is so simple and so radically profound. The name of the discourse is called the All. And in it, the Buddha describes in six short phrases, the all, the totality of our experience. So what is the all? The eye, invisible objects. The ear and sounds. The nose and smells. The tongue and taste. The body and tactile sensations. And the mind and mental objects. Thoughts and emotions and images. So these are basically the six sense bases and their respective objects. So this is not hard to understand or relate to. You know, so far, so good. Moment after moment, what we're experiencing are either moments of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking and feeling. So in a way, we could think of ourselves and our lives as a six-piece chamber orchestra playing the music of our lives. Because it's only these six things that are ever happening. And I find this particularly interesting to reflect on when you know, I or we <laughs> may be caught up in the complexity and confusion you know, of our lives. Just to reflect for a moment, it's only six things that are happening. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and feeling. This is what's going on. But here, you know, but this is the foundation of understanding. Here's where it starts to get interesting. Because how we're relating to this, these six basic building blocks how we relate to them become also part of the unfolding of our lives. And it either creates more stress and suffering for us or more peace and happiness. So what do we construct out of these fundamental elements, these fundamental building blocks of experience? What do we construct out of them, and how does it all happen? So here we're getting into now uh, the meat of the talk. The Buddha talked of three powerful tendencies in the mind. And in the Pali language, which is the language, uh, you know, in ancient India, in which the teachings have been preserved, in the Pali language, these proliferating tendencies are called papancha. And they build our experience of the world, these papancha, these proliferating tendencies, build our experience of the world based on the mistaken view of self. Right? So these very deeply rooted tendencies in the mind are constructing our lived experience based on a mistaken idea. And that's the cause of, again, in the Pali language, what is called dukkha, or the suffering, the confusion, the unsatisfactory nature of our lives. So we want to explore exactly how all this is happening. 
So the force is these proliferating tendencies, and they're deeply conditioned within us, deeply habituated. These three forces are the tendencies of craving, of conceit, and wrong view. And I'm going to talk about each of these in some more detail and how they operate in our lives. So craving is something that I think uh, most of us are easily familiar with. It's wanting or a desire or a thirst for something. What's interesting is that craving is rooted in the sense of things being mine or belonging to me. You know, we want things so that they can belong to me, so that they become mine. And that's what we crave. So I'll just give you a very uh, simple example of this kind of craving based on mine or belonging to me. This is something that happened years ago on a retreat. I was at the Forest Refuge here at IMS doing my own retreat. And I'm, you know, we, we all probably have established certain routines, you know, when we go on retreat. So one of my, one of my things on retreat, I have a favorite retreat sweatshirt. It's really comfy. So every retreat I'm on, I just, I, I wear this, wear this sweatshirt. So I was doing walking meditation and I felt like I was quite deep in my practice. And as I was walking, I was reflecting on the Four Noble Truths and how craving is the cause of suffering, you know, which is the second, the second Noble Truth. And I thought to myself, Joseph, well, if craving is the source of suffering, just stop craving. <laughs> just stop it. <laughs> so that was, my, that was my thought and my, my intention and my reflection. And then in the very next moment, I started thinking about my favorite sweatshirt. And then I thought, oh, it would be nice to have it in a lot of different colors. And my mind went on this whole fantasy of getting the sweatshirt in different colors. So you see how craving is deeply habituated, even in the midst of, you know, Sometimes what seems like deep practice and being on retreat, but still it manifests. Craving based on the sense of mine or having something belong to me. Okay, that's the first of the proliferating tendencies of the pancha. And you can see, I think you can get the sense of what's meant by proliferating. So I went from just, you know, enjoying my sweatshirt to all of a sudden wanting one in uh, six different colors, and the mind just proliferates in that way. Okay, the second of the proliferating tendencies is conceit. And this is the English translation of the Pali word mana, M-A-N-A. And it means something a little different than the usual English meaning of the word conceit, which, you know, usually is, suggests somebody being very puffed up, you know, or thinking very well of themselves. Here, in the Buddhist sense, mana or conceit, in its most fundamental meaning, 
is that felt sense of I am. It's like I amness, right? Which is very pervasive. You know, we, we go through the day very much immersed in this feeling. It was expressed once or an ad in the New York Times was for a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt uh, was emblazoned me, me, me. <laughs> right? So this is this is would be an expression of conceit. So there's craving, one of the proliferating tendencies, conceit, this sense, this felt sense, deeply felt sense, I am. And then the third proliferating tendency is called wrong view. And in the Buddhist teachings, wrong view refers to the deeply held belief that there is a self, some unchanging, enduring being at the center of it all. That being to whom everything is happening. So craving, conceit, and wrong view. And just as a, a reminder, conceit is more the felt sense of I am, and wrong view is the belief that there is a self at the center of it all. And in the teachings, these three tendencies are usually expressed as this is mine, which is based on craving, this I am, which is based in conceit, and this is myself, which is based in wrong view. Right? So this is mine, this I am, this is myself. These are the three expressions of Papancha. So it would be helpful in understanding the practical application of all this to distinguish these tendencies one from the other and to begin to get some sense about how they are functioning or how they're manifesting in our lives. Because these are the different ways we construct and strengthen the sense of self in our lives. And the clearer we are about them, the easier it is to see and disentangle from them. But just to give you a sense of how important this is, you know, on our path of practice and liberation, I want to read just a short teaching from. Uh, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan meditation masters of the last century. So this is what he said. The idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly in samsara, in this round of existence, for countless past lifetimes. It is the very thing now this enduring, the idea of an enduring sense of self. It is this very thing now that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. 
So I hope you get a sense of just how crucial, you know, unpacking this notion of self and the different ways it manifests through the papancha, through the proliferating tendencies in our aspiration to be free, to both free ourselves and to help free others. So we can see how each of these three tendencies, how they work and how they're differentiated in some very ordinary experiences in our lives. So I hope it will help to clarify the meaning of each of these tendencies. So for example, how do we relate to the body? Right here, we can begin to see the difference between craving this is mine, and conceit, this I am. Because in considering the body, for example, we probably wouldn't say, I am the leg, or the leg is me. But we would probably commonly refer to it as my leg, as if it belongs to this imaginary me. So the leg is mine. You know, the leg belongs to me. And so that then entails, you know, whatever craving or desires we have about the leg being this way or that way. As we extend this to how we relate to the whole body, it gets a little interesting because at first it's possible we might think, you know, or say, well, I am the body. But certainly as we age, we have a very different experience of it. So it's quite common as we get older to feel that who we are, the sense of I am, hasn't really changed at all. Even as we see the gray hairs and the wrinkles, internally, we may feel we're the same person, the same me that we were you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so when we see the body age so visibly and even feel the effects of aging, we might often wonder, well, how did this happen? It seems, it seems so strange because internally, uh, you know, we may not feel that we've aged at all. So again, it's more likely to see the body in this, you know, with this perspective as belonging to me rather than it being who I am. Now, particularly with the sense of the body being mine, the body belonging to me, it's so clear how many desires and cravings arise from that sense. You know, my body and all the, all the craving and desire that arises. We wanting the body to be and to look a certain way. And probably a good part of our lives revolves around thinking and trying to satisfy, you know, these cravings. Just as an extreme expression of this, uh, I once saw an ad, it was in some magazine, you know, it was this beautiful person. Uh, and the caption was, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. <laughs> As if the fulfillment of all our wants and cravings 
is the main purpose of our lives. It would be interesting just to notice and to reflect how central this motivation is in our own lives, even if it is expressed a little more subtly. You know, how much of our lives do we spend in trying to fulfill the desires and cravings related to my body? Now, here there's another really interesting discernment that we can begin to investigate in our lives because it actually can save us a lot of stress. Unexamined, we often equate pleasure with desire. You know, and another ad I once saw, the caption was, increase your desire, as if that's a good idea, and as if that will actually bring us more pleasure. And we don't see, if we haven't really investigated, we think and we equate desire with pleasure, and we don't really see the stress involved in the wanting, in the craving, in the desire. So just as an experiment where you can check this out for yourself, you know, and as with all the teachings, and I think this is important to say, there's no suggestion that you should just hear this and just necessarily believe it all. It's all an invitation to investigate for yourself, to explore, and to just use these suggestions to help in that investigation. So one, one exercise in meditation, which would be really interesting, you know, when you're sitting and some desire arises and, you know, maybe caught up in it, maybe it's desire for food or sexual fantasy or next vacation, whatever it may be, there's some desire arising in the mind, caught up in it. And then at a certain point, the desire will pass because everything does pass, everything changes. So just notice what it feels like in that moment when the desire passes. Right? So we're caught up, we're lost in fantasy, desiring, desiring, wanting, and then at a certain point, the desire goes right in that moment. Pay attention to what it feels like as the desire passes away. My own experience has always been that in that moment of the desire passing, to me, it always feels like a tremendous sense of relief. It feels like the mind, the heart has just been let out of the grip of something. Right? And the ease of that letting go. And right there, we can begin to see kind of the stress involved when we're caught up in wanting and craving and the ease and the peace when the mind is free of that. Okay, so we can uh, see this a lot with reference to craving associated with the sense of the body being mine. The body belongs to me. We also claim ownership 
its mine with much of our inner world. My anger, my thoughts, my happiness, you know, all of this belonging to me. And this sense of ownership, this beginning to, to uh, solidify, you know, our sense of self through desire and craving and me and mine starts really young. This, this sense of possessiveness starts really early in our lives. So just imagine kind of a group of kids, you know, playing with some toys you know, on the playground and maybe parents are urging uh, their children, you know, urging them to share their toys and coming up against perhaps an occasional heartfelt wail, but it's mine, <laughs> you know, and the kids just claiming that ownership, you know, and resisting the urge to share. So you can see this is not a superficial conditioning. This goes very deep in the way our hearts and minds have been programmed. Okay, the Buddha also spoke of more subtle kinds of craving. And this has particular application in our meditation practice itself. And the Buddha called this kind of craving craving for becoming. When we believe this mind and body to be mine, that they belong to me, then all kinds of cravings are going to arise. We want to become, we want them to become this or that. And so it's very much involved in this craving for becoming. And one aspect of this, you know, which we're all familiar with in our meditation practice and in other aspects of our lives as well, is that wanting energy of expectation. Just think of times in your practice when things are not flowing along smoothly, when it feels like we're struggling to meditate. And usually we see struggle as a problem. But actually, the feeling of struggle, the sense of struggle, is really not a problem. It's actually tremendously helpful feedback. Because what struggle means is that something is going on that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. And so, you know, it might be discomfort in the body. It might be the restless mind. It might be a lot of disturbing sounds. Something is going on, or a difficult emotion. Now, something is going on that we're not open to. And when we're not open to it, then it's fuel for the craving and expectation of wanting it to be different. So we want to take this time of expectation, really investigate the struggle that may be fueling it and seeing that 
that feeling of struggle is actually good feedback reminding us, okay, what am I not accepting? Can I open to that? And then seeing how the non-acceptance is just fueling all kinds of expectations. So they all can come down to one really deeply rooted tendency, conditioning that is pretty universal, you know, and in one way gets to the very heart of our practice, namely because of the sense of the mind-body being mine, we want what's pleasant and we don't want what's unpleasant. So this is how most people live it. And also would feel, well, this is quite natural. You know, of course we want what's pleasant and want to avoid what's unpleasant. But for those on the path, you know, I'm really investigating, trying to explore in a deeper way, you know, what are the causes of suffering in our lives and what's the possibility really for peace and for ease and for freedom. We want to really bring uh, our mindfulness, our awareness, to see that in a very fundamental way, there's more distress in wanting to get rid of the unpleasantness than in simply feeling the unpleasantness itself. And for those of you who are somewhat experienced in practice, you may well have had the experience over time of gradually developing that equanimity where we're open to what's pleasant and we feel that, we're open to what's unpleasant and we're okay with that without a reactivity in the mind. And we begin to experience for ourselves, again, this is not no longer theoretical or some conceptual teaching. We really begin to experience for ourselves the ease of that non-reactivity, the ease of non-craving, the ease of coming out or disentangling from this particular papancha or proliferating tendency. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't respond to what we're experiencing. So it's not like we just, you know, oh, whatever, and we're not engaged with the world. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. The question is, can our response and our engagement come from a place of wisdom rather than the conditioned reaction of craving? Of just, I want what's pleasant, I don't want what's unpleasant, you know, and caught up in that reactivity, can we respond to the situations around us with greater wisdom? Because obviously, we need to take care of our bodies, and we need to take care of our minds, and we need to take care of the environment, both physical and social environments. And there are definitely times when it's important to set boundaries you know, or we're simply satisfying basic needs. So all of this is both necessary and appropriate. And we don't want to be using Dharma terminology 
you know, for what, what has been called spiritual bypass. You know, oh, there's no one here, so nothing matters. Or everything's empty, so, you know, making wise choices is not important. That, that's an incorrect understanding of all this. And when we read the Buddhist discourses, you see, he was often quite fierce in highlighting what's right and what's wrong, what's skillful and unskillful, what's wholesome and unwholesome. So we want to have that discernment, but can we be responsive rather than reactive? Acting from a place of discernment and wisdom rather than the conditioned reactivity of craving. Okay, so I've talked quite a lot now about the first aspect of Papancha, which is craving born from the notion, this is mine, this belongs to me, whether it's the body belonging to me, our thoughts and emotions belonging to a me, or the external things belonging to a me. Right? So this is the proliferating tendency of craving. And I think it's not hard to see how this force of craving just kind of builds our world and uh, the world that we inhabit. Okay, the workings of the second aspect of Papancha conceit this is a little more subtle and in some ways more pervasive although the conceit again remember it it means that sense of i am i am this usually in the buddhist meaning of this of conceit i am it refers to the comparing mind when we compare oneself with others as being either better than, equal to, or worse than someone else. But conceit also manifests as thoughts of I am over time. So, for example, any thoughts of I was this in the past, I am this now, I will be in the future. So you can see that these thoughts, which are very common in our lives, you know, memories and plans and reflections on the present, if we're not careful in our mindfulness and awareness, it just reinforces this sense of I am. Generally, this uh, papancha of conceit is so deeply rooted and so pervasive, it's really the backdrop of how we interpret our experience in the world. And it's just so common, we don't even pay attention to it. So just as an example, we go through the day, hmm, I'm walking, I'm eating, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And unthinkingly, we're not even paying attention to it, just in that way of understanding and expressing things, we are again reinforcing the notion that there is this mysterious I behind it all, you know, to whom experience is happening. So, 
what's what's so striking to me is that it is so ordinary. We don't usually take the time to investigate what is the I that we're talking about. So I'd like to uh, just give two examples of this. The first showing the proliferating tendency of I am. And the second uh, example really highlighting the suffering aspect and a potential for freedom when we understand it. So this past winter, I was on a self-retreat at home here in Barry. And as most of you probably know, the New England winters can be really cold. So I was doing walking meditation outside and it was freezing. It was like a burning icy wind and my face was burning. It was, it was really unpleasant. And the way I started just thinking about it, again, quite subliminally, oh, I'm really cold. I'm really cold. Uh, uh, this is painful. And of course, that would be a you know conventional and convenient way to express what was going on. But there's really something deeper that was happening. So instead of the simple awareness, there's cold or there's unpleasantness. Right, noting the unpleasant feeling of it, the I amness, I'm so cold, quickly morphed into several minutes of Hawaii fantasies. Oh, if only I could be walking, doing my walking meditation on the beach in Hawaii. You know, and so I spent, you know, some couple of minutes indulging in that fantasy. But it was all arising out of basically that proliferation of the tendency, the conceit, I am. I'm so cold. And if only I were in Hawaii, things would be so much more agreeable. So you can see how deeply embedded this particular tendency of I am is in our lives. It's just the ordinary way we view our experience. But it's not the most liberating way of viewing our experience. And in fact, it entangles us in all kinds of suffering. So the other example, and perhaps even more impactful than a few minutes of Hawaii fantasy, is how the conceit, this tendency, this papancha of conceit, I am, has to do with self-judgment and self-criticism. Now, in teaching, you know, for so many years now, over 50 years, and hearing, you know, so many meditators come in and describe their experience, it's striking. And I see in my, in my own experience in life, just how striking the depth of the conditioning of the pattern of self-judgment is. You know, and it, it's a lot of suffering, you know, for us. So I, I had a revealing experience of this on my last retreat, which reinforced something I had observed before, but it really stood out. It was, it was highlighted in this one particular example. 
So I was on retreat doing quite intensive practice. And then one day, I don't even remember exactly the details, but I just uh, I just fritted away some time. I don't know. I spent an hour or so just, I don't even remember what I was doing, but it wasn't meditating, you know, and it wasn't even being particularly aware. And then at a certain point, I became aware of this and I saw my mind become quite self-judgmental, you know, of, oh, you wasted all this time and such a terrible yogi and just going on and on and on. But I wasn't feeling good. You know, it really created a down mood in myself, this self-judgment and self-criticism. But then something very interesting happened. And it was really quite amazing. As soon as I could see all of these self-critical, self-judgmental thoughts as a manifestation of mana, of conceit, of I am, there was a lot of I amness in a negative way. Right? So it was the working of conceit, papancha, and it was so obvious the proliferating aspect of it was so clear because it just created a whole self-story, you know, around that particular self-judgment and the strong sense of I am-ness in it. But what was so amazing, and this is really what I'd like to encourage you to investigate for yourself, as soon as I could name the defilement, as soon as I could name that particular tendency as mana, you know, as conceited. And I, myself, I like using the Pali word because in a way it just highlights the impersonality of that tendency because the mana itself is not self. It's just this particular tendency in the mind of I aming. So as soon as I could name, oh, that's just mana. You know, and seeing it in that way, it was amazing. The whole thing just fell away, and I settled back back into the present moment and just continued with my practice. So the important point here, and, and it has quite a general application that can be so helpful and so freeing, when we're in some state of suffering or discontent, if we can see the particular defilement in the mind that's causing the suffering, it might be conceit, it might be craving, it might be aversion, whatever it is, whatever unwholesome tendency in the mind, if we can actually name that particular mind state you know, and see it, it extricates us from identification with the whole story. It frees us from that whole a web of proliferation because we're just seeing the root cause underneath the proliferation. Oh, this is just mana. That's all it is. And again, in that moment, no longer caught in the story, back in a place of ease. You know, this, this is often represented in the Buddhist texts where some of you are probably familiar just with 
with the figure of Mara, which is, this is not Mana, this is Mara is kind of the embodiment of ignorance, you know, and very often manifest, uh, you know, as as some being coming uh, coming to test the Buddha or the great uh, disciples, you know, with some temptation or other, and they will say, oh, Mara, I see you. And in the moment of saying, Mara, I see you, Mara disappears. So this is the same thing. We can apply that very same energy to our own experience of difficulty or suffering if we can connect with a particular mind state, state that's causing the suffering. Because that's what takes us out of the story. The story, the proliferation of I am. You know, it's so interesting. When we focus on the content and the story that arises in these situations, it's just so seductive because we're the star of the show. You know, there's a that sense of I, and it, it could be a farce, it could be a tragedy, but that's what makes it seductive. But really, what's happening is that we're just proliferating the I am into existence. Okay, so when we do that, then we come back again to what I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk. We can come back and reconnect with the basic building blocks of experience. You know, those six basic, basic building blocks. And this was expressed in one very powerful discourse the Buddha gave. Uh, it's called the Discourse to Bahia. And there's a whole background story to it, but just to abbreviate, this man Bahia came to see the Buddha. Uh, he traveled a long distance, very on fire with wanting, wanting to be free. And he met the Buddha when the Buddha was out on alms round asking for the teachings. The Buddha said, please wait, come back to the monastery, I'll be glad to teach you. But he was very insistent. He said, no, please teach me now. You may die, I may die. Teach me, teach me now. Okay, so there's the Buddhist, you know, in the middle of this speak with his alms bowl, how to, how to express the most liberating of teachings in just, you know, just a few short phrases. So this is part of part of that sutta. He said, by here, you should train yourself thus. In the scene, let there be just what is seen. In the heard, let there be just what is heard. In the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, let there be just what is sensed. And in the thought, let there be just what is thought. And in that way, the mind becomes free. We were not caught up in papancha, in the proliferating tendencies around these basic elements of our experience. In seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mind objects, let there be just what there is. You know? And that really opens up the gateway to uh, ever-deepening Dharma understanding. Of course, as my first teacher, Munindraji, would often say, 
It's simple, but it's not easy because these proliferating tendencies of craving, conceit, and wrong view are so deeply habituated within us. Now, they ensnare us again and again in these constructed worlds of I, me, and mine. So we need to see how they're operating. We need to, to explore and investigate, we could say, the mechanics of our lives, of how we're creating our worlds and creating our experience. You know, as the famous Indian uh, poet and philosopher and author Tagore said, it's very simple to be happy, but it's very difficult to be simple. <laughs> you know, and I think that's very reflective of our path. It's not complicated. It's very simple. It's simple, but not easy. So one of the most common manifestations of conceit, which I mentioned earlier, is the comparing mind, where we evaluate ourselves in relationship to some other person or to some idealized presentation of someone. And a good part of our consumer society runs on this mental state. You know, we see some ad uh, showing a totally perfect being enjoying some product. You know, and the suggestion is that if only we had that object, we would enjoy the same happiness as this perfect being obviously enjoying. Of course, on a rational level, we know this is ridiculous, and yet it works on us, you know, and how much of our society, you know, is based on that kind of consumer craving, thinking that, yes, uh, comparing ourselves to somebody who has these things, that will also make us happiness. So I think most of us at least have some, have made some beginning in seeing through this, uh, but it'd be worth paying attention to it because it's pretty deep and, and often subliminal, but perhaps on a subtle, more subtle level and a more, I would say, deeply impactful level, it would be very illuminating to watch our minds as we meet or interact with different people. Now, how many quick little comparing judgments are we making? Comparisons are we making? You know, it could be about appearance, could be about personality, it could be about intelligence, it could be about skills, it could be about almost anything. Even, it could even be about how mindful one is being and comparing ourselves with others. And there's this strong tendency to evaluate ourselves based on this comparison. And we feel either less than or equal to or more than with all of the attendant emotions. But all of this falls away as soon as we recognize this comparing mind, oh, this is just mana. This is just the conceit I am, the comparing mind. We see it and it no longer has a hold on us. Okay, so we've talked about craving, we've talked about conceit. The last of the proliferating tendencies the Buddha called 
wrong view. And as I mentioned, this is the deeply conditioned belief that there is a self, meaning some core, unchanging, underlying being that is the who of who, who am I? We don't quite know what it is, and yet we still believe it to be at the center of our existence. While conceit is the felt sense, I am, wrong view is this deeply embedded belief. And this belief conditions a good part of how we move in the world. So the Buddha was very strong in his teaching about wrong view. He said he sees nothing more harmful, no mental state more harmful than wrong view. Because everything stemming from this belief in self leads us in the wrong direction. It leads us in the direction of more suffering, of more stress, of more unease. So <laughs> this has been a lot. <laughs> Hopefully, you've gotten some sense of how these three aspects of papancha, and papancha again means proliferating tendencies of mind. So it's not just that they're unskillful in themselves, they have the power to proliferate. Somebody once called them the imperialistic qualities of the mind. They try to take everything over. So hopefully, You've gotten some sense of how these three different aspects are manifesting and working in our lives. You know, the aspects of this is mine, this I am, this is myself. So one big question remains, and that is given the great conditioning power of Papancha, these proliferating tendencies that construct and reconstruct our lived experience out of the basic building blocks, the simple building blocks of our experience, what is the remedy? How do we free ourselves? And that will be the topic of the next talk. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.